Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, again, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. We're tackling a a big part of Deuteronomy today. We're going to take a big bite. We're going to be chewing. Hopefully you guys are set. Deuteronomy 19 through 26, as we consider, again, just a, a, a long view of Deuteronomy and what it means for us as Christians today. Today we're going to be talking about peace and safety through worship. You can turn to Deuteronomy, actually chapter 26 is where we're going to start off, actually. We're going to start at the, the end of it, so chapter 26, and we're going to be reading a few verses here in a moment. But I think you would agree with me, especially of those now who are now have families, you're married, you have children, and even those who are not, that peace and safety is something that you're concerned with. It's, it's high on our, our list of, of things that we definitely desire in this world. But so often in peace and safety in our marriages, in our communities, in our nation, in this world, it seems so elusive. It seems like every time we think we're getting closer to peace and safety, something seems to derail it or to blow it up. Most of us want to live our lives peacefully with our neighbors and co-workers and even our in-laws. We desire to know that our families are safe in their homes. They're safe in their neighborhoods, their schools, and their playgrounds. How many of you today would allow your child to just take their bike and just go out and just ride the whole day? You know, but for many of us, that's how we grew up, right? We could go down to the beach. We could go down wherever, and and you didn't really matter. But today, we, we want our kids and our family right near to us. And I agree, I understand that so much. We yearn for the days of our youth when life seems simpler and happier. Yet when we open up our social media accounts, when we turn on the news, when we walk into the markets and to the the public places, we come face to face with a world, a culture, a society that is anything but peaceful and safe. One wrong turn on the right day can put you in harm's way as you confront an angry mom that's protesting one issue or another. Or maybe a simple run to the store can quickly turn into a shouting match between those who wear masks and those who don't. An innocent like or heart emoji or share or retreat or retweet on social media can lead to an uproar of anger among those who you once considered friends and you find yourself being canceled. It's no wonder that many would prefer to stay locked down in their homes and not venture out anymore. We look to our government to do their job, protect us from dangerous people and situations. We demand more laws to keep us safe. We pour pour money into systems and, and alarms and other things for more protection to keep us safe. Yet, we still feel more vulnerable each day. However, just as we talked about peace or justice last year, last week, peace and safety can only be found through the worship of God. Let me say it again. Peace and safety can only be found through worship of Yahweh. 
Last week, Moses reminded him that true worship that includes justice, but is demonstrated only by loving Yahweh and by loving their neighbors. And it's only through worship can we obtain any semblance of a fair and balanced society or justice in society. In today's passage, Moses is going to stipulate the various laws from the covenant that was given to Mount Sinai that will lead to peace and safety in their marriages, in their families, in their homes, in their congregations, and throughout the nations in the promised land. So with that, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19. Again, as I say each week, bring your Bibles with you. We do put some scripture on here, but I encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you do not have one, let me know. I'd love to give you a good copy of God's Word. So with that, we're in chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verse 16, where Moses writes, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statues and rules, And you shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all of his commandments. In verse 19, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he has made, and that you shall be people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's revealed to us your nature. It's revealed to us who you are, your attributes. So give us wisdom as we read your scripture, as we read these stipulations that seem so foreign to us, so strange. Father, ones in which many people will use to attack us. Help us to understand them. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment. And most of all, Lord, may they direct our hearts towards you and the cross of Christ for the one who accomplished all that was required on our behalf. We thank you again for this time in your name. Amen. Chapters 19 through 26 of Deuteronomy are broken into the various laws and requirements for the Hebrew children. As Moses writes in chapter 19, now go back to chapter 19 as we're going to work our way through several verses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and their houses. So this is setting up, God is saying, listen, this is what you need to do when you finally get into the promised land and I give you all the lands that you have not built, the cities you have not built, the farms that you have not built, all these things I am going to give to you But here's are the rules and stipulations. And here's why I'm giving it. It's a covenant that God is making with the children. These stipulations cover diverse areas, such as instructions for societal order. How are you to live? How are you to do civil laws? Instructions for the miscellaneous laws. How you are to live among each other. The first fruits and tithes and lands. The things that they they farm and the way that they're going to give back to the nation. And then the affirmation of obedience. Do you accept these terms? Now, as they prepare for the final leg of their journey to the promised land, 
Remember, this is the next generation of Hebrew children. This is not the original group that came out of Egypt. Some of them might have came as young children, but their fathers and their mothers, their uncles, their aunts, their grandfathers, they have passed away by wandering in the desert 40 years. They were cursed and not allowed to enter. So this is a new group of people. They are young, uh, probably less old, uh, not much older than 40 years or so themselves, but they're preparing for that final leg into the promised land. And these children now need to agree to the stipulations or the law of Moses that was given to their fathers at Mount Sinai. And like their fathers before them, Yahweh knew that there was going to be a great temptation to fall, to, to be tempted, to compromise in their worship, in their lifestyles, and in their worldview. In other words, God understands even today for you and I, the constant slow pull of society to join in their depravity and to compromise their faith. And this came very clear to me this week as one of the guys that I follow on Twitter tweeted this. He said, the Christian life is full of everyday pull of sin, of fighting sin and suffering through sin. And isn't that true? It seems like when we get saved, we want everything is going to be great, right? Everything is going to be rosy. Every day will be like Friday. But really, the Christian life is just a constant fighting of sin. Hence why scripture says, count the cost. Your life doesn't come easier when you become saved, when you become a Christian. There's a sense in which it does, and then there you now have hope. You now have a new reason for living. You have a now a new power over sin. But that fighting of sin becomes very, very difficult. And so God knows that you and I are going to be pulled away. We're going we're gonna to be, we're gonna be uh, tempted to compromise, as we see many are still doing each and every generation. And so God wants to confirm with them, hey, this is what you're signing up for. Now, through Moses, God reminds them that Israel, the, children of he, uh, the Hebrew children, are people for his treasured possession. Now, these words might sound familiar because God uses them for us today as the church in 1 Peter. We are his treasured possessions. And as his treasured possessions, we are expected to keep all of God's commandments. Jesus says the same. If you love me, keep my commandments. In return for their submission to his lordship and a commitment to his commandments. So in return for that, Yahweh promises the children of Israel that he will set them in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations. In other words, they will have a special standing among the people that he has made. And that they, speaking of the children of Israel, shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. Now that same promise is for you and I today. We are not the new Israel, but the same promises are given to the bride of Christ, which the church is. Those who have submitted to the Lordship of God. He says he has set us above. Now their admission or submission to his reign included every area of life. They would have to submit to God in their marriages, in their family, in their businesses, their civil affairs, and all facets of life. God says you must submit. There is not one area in your life that God does not say that that is mine and is due me. And so we must recognize that we, we as people, we're good at compartmentalizing. Well, well, God can have this part of my life. He can have Sunday morning from 1045 to 12. But after that, this is my time. But God says, no, all of it. 
Your Netflix account is mine. Your Hulu account is mine. Your, your social media is mine. Can't hide a password from him. He knows every stray and single thought that we have. And so God says you must submit in all areas of life. And for you and I, that's difficult. That's difficult for them, as we're going to see. These various laws concern taking care of animals, home safety, planting of crops, misgendered dress. Even back then, God was saying that you should not dress in misgender. There was gender uh, uh, expectations, sexual immorality, ritual cleanness, uh, loans, how you're going to loan your money out, and how to treat the slaves of defeated foes. Most of these laws and stipulations are going to seem very strange and very restrictive and very harsh to, to our postmodern eyes and ears, our sensibilities. Today, many atheists and others who reject the claims of submission to a creator and reject the authority of the Bible will use these laws to point to the absurdity of the requirements of Scripture. And even declare that Christians today are hypocrites for not living by the stipulations of the old covenant. If we are to say, well, people should not be transgendered, well, they say, well, yeah, but do you wear clothing that have mixed uh, linen on it? Do you ever eat anything that has blood in it? Do you do this? Do you do that? So these laws many times have been weaponized against Christians today. So it's important for you and I to understand then how do we relate to these laws. It's very important. Even today, Christians are confused by the various laws of the Old Testament. And we're at a loss of how to examine them, how to express them, not only to ourselves, but to our family, maybe to our children, to our spouses and others, and explain them what they mean. So I think it's important for us as we read through these is to try to do that. Because it's important because, again, they have been weaponized against us. And many times we have found many uh, different denominations that will use these laws and say, well, how do we live them out and, and even expect others to live by them? One online ministry, you might have heard of before we used to use them in our adult core class, is called the Bible Project. Uh, it's a nonprofit animation studio, and it helps people experience the Bible as a unified story. And again, it's a, it's a broken clock ministry. In other words, when I use a broken clock preacher or broken clock ministry, it's like they're right twice a day. They're right a little bit more than twice a day, but there are some things that I might take issue. But if you're, by the way, just for a parent, write this down, BibleProject.com. They have great stories. And by the way, even as adults, they have great animation that helps you understand the Bible. And they do it in such a great way, though I will tell you that there are times that, that I struggle with them. So if you ever find anything that's alarming to you, please let us know. But I still think that they are beneficial. Uh, they're mainly directed towards teens and to adults. Uh, but again, it's a great way to understand the Bible. But in there, they're going to give us some things that help us, uh, give us some helpful tips. So I'm going to use their three points because I thought they were good and, I, and there's no reason to reinvent the will. So you're going to see this if you're taking notes. And on there, there's the first one, tips for reading the laws. The number one thing that you and I need to recognize about these laws is that they are terms of the Sinai covenant that are given to ancient Israel. In other words, they're given to a specific people at a specific time in history for a specific purpose. So the laws are the terms are of the Sinai covenant that was given to ancient Israel. One of the mistakes that both Christians and opponents of Scripture make 
is to misunderstand the purposes of the law. They were given to the Hebrew children as Yahweh's chosen people. And like covenants made between other kings and their subjects, the Mosaic covenant was between God and his treasured possession, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it is true that foreigners and sojourners were given the freedom and the ability to join themselves to the nation of Israel and then they too would be expected to observe all the rituals, the sacrifices, and the laws. But it was not binding on other nations. Okay, This wasn't a universal law for all nations. In the same way, it's not binding on us today because you and I are not ancient Israel. There's only one person here I know that has made an exodus from Egypt. And so in that, that's just a little joke for you, is that we are not Hebrew children that are escaping slavery. We're escaping from a different type of Egypt called the world, and we're escaping slavery, but we are not ancient Egypt or Israel at that time. We're not Hebrew children. Even for Jewish people today, it's not binding. The scripture has declared that there has become a new covenant. And now that there's a new covenant, the old covenant has passed away. It has come and they are no longer under the old law, even though many of them choose to continue to do so. Yes, the laws and the regulations will seem strange and restrictive to us today, but that is only because they are for a specific people living during a specific time in a specific land. Some examples of the strange or unfamiliar laws as you read through 19 through 26 are stoning of rebellious children. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not be here today if that was still part of the law. Uh, your children would not be. I bet you, you probably wouldn't be here or some of you would be walking with much more of a pronounced limp. The, uh, the not making of tassels to put on your four corners of your, of your, of your dress or your clothes. The, the, the law about cleanliness and how, what you're supposed to do if there's mold in your house or if there's a mark or a blemish on your skin. How to handle the diseases, the civil and the court cases that they have. So these are strange and unfamiliar, but that's because it was specific people for a specific time in a specific land. Number two tips for reading the laws is we shouldn't compare them with modern laws we shouldn't say well look at that law and say should that be a law today but with laws of their neighbors at that time now this is especially important as we stated previously they seem strange to our postmodern minds for they are strange to understand them better we need to understand the time and the practices of the other nations behind them one historian notes that the ancient Near Eastern collections of laws contains just a list of laws and rules. They're framed by perhaps a, an introduction or an epilogue, whereas the Jews in the Torah are embedded within a narrative. And you and I understand it, it tells us how we live and it, and it fits within the history of those people and who they are. In some cases, they're not understandable without it. Moreover, the Torah's commandments are presented as a covenant in which the people agree, and they're not merely a list of laws imposed upon them upon a king that has conquered them. In other words, laws in the ancient Near East, a king would conquer a people and he would say, here's, this is what you have to do. And you would follow him. But in a covenant with God, God says, as we see in Deuteronomy 26, here are my stipulations. Do you agree to them? This is what I will do for you in submission to me. So we can kind of understand that. There is a little bit of a difference. 
Now in one code, the code, the code of Hammer Abai, I, I got that as close as I can, that's one of the most ancient codes of laws that you and I have found. Well, not you and I personally, but history has. You might have read about that uh, in, in uh, middle school or, or maybe in the higher fourth, fifth to sixth grade in your social studies or in history. And it's an ancient, it's, it was an ancient Babylon. This is several hundred years before Moses. There were other nations that were putting out laws like this. And what they did is it was to promote the welfare of the people. It was to cause justice to prevail in the land and destroy the wicked and the evil and that the strong might not oppress the weak. So even then, their laws were very much like what we think of our Declaration of Independence or Constitution. It's to promote the life and pursuit of happiness. It includes like the book of Deuteronomy with a series of curses. So they're very much like the book of Deuteronomy where there's curses and blessings for those who follow them and those who disobey them. Now there are some laws as we see here that allow for punishment for offenses uh, to be no more severe than the offense. So give me an example. In the, the code of, of Hambari, it says, if, a, if he has broken a landowner's home, they shall break his bones. Whereas in Leviticus, one would say, anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Other Eastern social customs, such as establishing honor and respects are due to parents, are also found in both. One says, if a son has struck his father, they shall cut off his hand. Scripture says, whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. Another important, important feature of the law of that time, speaking of the other natures, is it has, a, or speaking of the scriptures, I should say, it has actually a higher level, level of justice than the ancient codes of the people around them. And it stands in stark contrast to the brutality of the nations around them. In other words, the, the law of God, even though it was very similar to the laws of the other nations, there was actually greater protection in the law of God, especially for women and for children and for others. In the Torah, life and property are considered comparable, while the ancient New Eastern codes, they are often equated. Or I'm sorry, life and property are never considered comparable. In other words, there was more, uh, uh, they, they, the, the Torah, the law of God, actually had a higher a sanctity of life. It also has different uh, conceptions of justice. And to understand these important differences is we need to understand is they put different values on life and liberty and animals and things of that nature. In other words, it, it sets up greater protections. The law of God was greater than that of the world around them. And though while the Old Testament codes may sometimes offend modern sensibilities, they are far less severe and arbitrary than those of the Near East. So again, we may think, look at these laws, they're strange. But when you compare them to the, the nations around them, they were actually greater. They actually revealed more about who God was. And they consistently reflect Israel's unique encounter with a God of grace and compassion who would reveal himself to them in the Exodus. Now number three is so if you or I are going to compare the law, we do not compare them to the law today, but we compare them with the nations around them. And I know that's kind of geeky uh, and kind of, kind of tough to understand, but that, that, there's your history lesson. But number three is we need to discern the core principle underlying the law. We need to understand what was the principle, what was the why of the law? Why did God say this? Why did he put such requirements? Now, I know I'm being redundant again. 
but redundancy is the key of learning. And we've said this here many times. It's important for us to remember that all the laws, the rules, the stipulations, and regulations are undergirded by a guiding principle that illuminates the character of the law giver. Let me say that once again. It's important to remember that all laws, rules, and stipulations, and regulations are undergirded by a guiding principle and priorities that illuminates the character of a law giver. Now, that is true whether or not it's talking about a parent, a teacher, a homeowner's association, or government officials. You look at the law that will tell you about who the lawgiver is. It will tell you about their priorities. It will tell you about their character, what they think, and who they are. And so you and I must recognize that not only in our, in our current culture today, when Congress or someone else uh, puts down a law, but we also understand that in those days, again, when we think of 1973, 72, when Congress, uh, or excuse me, when the Supreme Court said, we give a right to privacy in the Roe versus Wade. In other words, we say this is now the law of the land, that you may kill your child up to the mo nine months. Now, you and I understand that that is a law that has been put in place that's not found in our Constitution. But now when we saw just recently with the Supreme Court justice as they're trying to bring one in, what is Congress saying? This is settled law. Well, let me ask you, the fact that someone can, can, can kill their baby up to the point of nine months and even do the partial, uh, partial birth where they deliver the head of the baby and then, then take its life. I'm not going to mess around anymore. When they murder that baby, what does that tell you about the lawgiver? There's no sanctity of life. There is no fear of God. There is no desire to love these children. Hence why when they, when they try to pass a law saying that if a baby is born alive from an abortion, then you must do all things to save that life. Well, they don't want that to be a law. No, you just let it sit there. And many abortion uh, uh, practitioners and nurses have talked about how they've delivered a baby that's born alive and then they put it over here and just let it flail until it finally dies. We now have a doctor who just several weeks ago said that he believes that you should be able to abort a child up to two years of age. So what does that say about a lawgiver? What does it say when someone says, I think that we ought to have a socialism in which we are taxed 90%, 60%, 70%. What does that say about the lawgiver? That what you own is not yours. And it is mine to take and then redistribute it and give it to others. And so when we vote in this country for laws and for, lawyer, and for congressmen, senators, so on, the lawgivers, what they say matters. Their character does matter. What their worldview does matter. Because it tells us something. And so that's so important. So when we discern the core principles, we need to understand why is God saying this? And what does this say about God? Now, many would say, well, that God is capricious. God is angry. God is wrath. He's a God of, uh, uh, of just of wanting to kill people. And that's how many people view the God of the Old Testament. But let me tell you, this is just a pastoral editor. I'm not even on my message at this point. Is that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is not two different gods. 
But what we see is a God who's revealing himself in one way and then revealing the rest of himself. And they are not contradictory, but they are complementary. And it's important for us to understand this. In this case, the law of Moses, as we're reading in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Exodus, Yahweh displays his goodness, his love, and his mercy, and his justice. That's what we see when we see the law of God. The law serves to give us guidance and requirements and the stipulations for societal and communal order. That dictates how we are to love one another through providing justice and, yes, peace and safety. I'll give you two examples. I think you're still in Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 19. I think you might be there from our last one. Look at Deuteronomy. Look at verse 15. He says this, A single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing or connection with the offense that he has committed. In other words, there needs to be fairness. One witness is not enough to condemn. You must have two or three. If a malicious, verse 16, uh, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and so on and so forth. Then verse 18, the judges shall inquire diligently if the witness is false and has accused his brother falsely. In other words, is this witness giving true testimony? Look at verse 19. If he is false, then you shall do to him that false witness, the one who gave the false witness, you shall do to him that which he is meant to do to his brother. In other words, whatever that false witness was trying to get done to his fellow man, do to him. Now you see that very easily in, in, in Esther with Haman and Mordecai. Remember that? Haman builds a, a, a big um, a, a gallows so he could murder uh, Mordecai, he sets up false witness, but who winds up hanging there? Haman does eventually. But look at it as he goes. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and you shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil. In other words, you need to put a false witness to death. Now to you and I, that seems harsh. But he's saying, no, you need to fear God. We cannot allow that continue. So it is going to whatever is required of him, you're going to require of that person. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But then something pretty drastic happens in Matthew when Jesus uses this portion of scripture. It's in 538. It's here on the monitor. Jesus teaches this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Where did he take that from? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. Jesus teaches this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, what are you to do? Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces the mile, what should you do? Go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow. Now, wait a second. Moses is teaching one thing, a false witness, do not have pity. Treat him as he should, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb. Jesus all of a sudden is saying something different. Is Jesus contradicting Moses? Which seems odd because Jesus or Moses is the one that's getting it from Jesus. 
He's getting, Jesus is the one who's sharing them. It seems as if Jesus is changing law. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is, is Jesus overruling Yahweh, the Father, God the Father? But we know that he cannot because he came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. We also know that God does not change. So what is going on here? Well, the passage in Deuteronomy, the principle of an eye for an eye, you've heard that phrase before, is known as the law of retaliation. The law is called for a fair and even exchange for a wrong. Whatever he wanted to be done to this man, the false witness, then the false witness is to bear that same penalty. It's not calling for the death penalty or extreme punishment, for put, but putting forth the guidelines for what would be required for justice. In other words, it would be fair and balanced. However, by the time of Jesus' teaching, this law of retaliation had morphed into the law of revenge. Jesus is not denying justice, but leading his disciples to a new law of forgiveness. God wants his children to set aside their rights. He wants us to set aside the offensives that we receive from other people and to forgive those who malign us, those that hurt us. In this way, evildoers would be pointed to the Christ. Now, this is the picture of the gospel. As the Father forgives those who rebelled against him. Would you want to get what you deserve? I don't think so. For you and I would be standing in ashes at this very moment. So God has called for us to respond to our family, to our friends, to those who hurt us, to those who try to malign us. He says you are to forgive them. It's not about the law of retaliation. It's not about the law of revenge. He says, I want to give you the law of forgiveness. And even then, all of this is pointing through the pages of Scripture as God reveals. And so again, we must understand the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was not decrying for more. It was just crying for fair. If someone punched a guy and he lost his eye, then the guy who punched him would lose an eye. It was just fair and balanced. It seems barbaric to you and I, but into those days, it seemed fair and balanced. Look with me again. Let's look at another one. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And what we're trying to do again is understand the principles. What is God revealing about himself in his law? Well, in chapter 25, verse 4, you see this simple thing. You shall not muzzle an axe when it is treading on the grain. Strange. What does it mean to muzzle an ox? Well, the law was intended for the benefit of an, of an animal. Again, when you muzzle an ox, it's kind of like muzzling a dog. It's, it's putting something over its face so it, it can't eat, it can't bite, it can't do those types of things. But even the ox, the, the animal that was designed by God to be a beast of burden, to make life more easier for the farmer, for the agriculturalist, the one who could use it to, to carry rocks or to pull things. He says, these are to be cherished and protected by human owners. In other words, God cares about the creatures. Even what you and I would sometimes say, the dumb ox, the beast of burden. Though we are given dominion over all of creation, we are to be its protectors of it at the same time. King Solomon had wrote in Proverbs, he says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked 
is cruel. We're to be kind to the animals and to those that God has given us authority over. The ox is allowed to be to the ox is to be allowed to eat of the fruit of its labor as it goes along its work. So for you and I, that's hard for us to understand, but many times what they would do, even for horses at that time, they would put a contraption around its neck, and as it's working, it would be able to eat as it works. Just like you and I are working, we may grab a sandwich, we may grab a soda or a cup of coffee. It's saying while he's working, feed him. Because many times they start in the middle, of the, they start in the early day and they just went all day. If the farmer is sitting there and eating, let the ox eat from the fruit of its labor. Give it some of the food that it is toiling for. So you can see even in scripture, he's caring for the animals. But Paul uses this verse in a different context in 1 Corinthians 9.9. You'll see it here on, on, the, on the monitor. Look what Paul says about this verse. For it is written in the law of Moses... You shut out muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Yeah, no. Well, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. In this passage, Paul is using the law to point out the importance of meeting the needs of the apostles, the missionaries, and others who work in the ministry. In other words, you need to make sure that they too are being fed. Let them have fruits of their labors. In both instances, the principle and the person is demonstrated. God loves all of his creation and provides for them all. The law stipulates that there must be fair justice with protection. This is shown in the requirements as we continue uh, on. And when he talks about the cities of refuge or differentiating between various types of death, homicide, manslaughter, etc. Uh, crimes for unsolved deaths. All of these things point to who God is. Property rights among neighbors, property rights among brothers, inheritance rights, witnesses, um, and uh, Issues with rebellious children, protection for females in marriage, uh, and captive slaves, so on and so forth. The law stipulates there must be fair justice with protection. That's what scripture is getting at. Theologian Fee and Stewart write this. The specific laws end with reminders of their need to always put God's first. So what do the laws tell us? Put God first and with a final injunction is when we put him first we do that by obeying his word so as I, you and I look today at scripture what does it tell us that you and I are to put God first in all things of our life and with that we are to obey him and with that God will reward us he gives us his promises the laws were to remind them that God has chosen them. Now they are to choose him. Here's what I would do. It's the king saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's my rules and stipulations. Now, do you agree to these terms? Choose me. Choose life. The king Solomon reminds him of their obligations and the promises of God. Look here on the monitor with me at Proverbs chapter 2. It says, so you shall walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Now this scripture is still God-breathed. It's ordained for, do for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness for us today. So as you read this, this is God's calling for you. You will walk, so walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths 
of the righteous. For the upright shall inhabit the land, and with the integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. You and I must understand that for the Israelites, the land is speaking about the promised land. For you and I, the land is the new heaven and the new earth, where one day when Christ comes again, we will once again be renewed. and We too will be once again as Adam was. But like Christ in the same way, is that once again we'll be have, uh, living in this earth. And the new heaven, new earth is going to be much like us here, but without the presence of sin. And so God is calling them, the Hebrew children, is walk in my ways, and if you walk in my ways, you will prosper. So again, we look at these laws and say, man, they're strange. Well, they are strange. They're written to a specific people for a specific time in a specific land. They're no longer binding on you and I. We shouldn't compare them to our modern laws. And so when others try to do that to you, you need to defer for there are many things that, that say, well, you know, these things are not binding on us. Though I will say that there are many things in the law that still are. As you'll see that many times in Scripture, you'll see that the things that were uh, um, immoral in those days are still immoral today. God's moral law hasn't changed. Those things are still in effect for you and I. And we see those through Scripture. We know that those who do anything immoral, those who are sorcerer, those who are homosexual, the Bible says will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But his news is, but such were some of you, but now you've been washed. You've entered into that new covenant with God. So what do these stipulations and these requirements and these laws mean for you and I today? Are we called to follow them? How do we justify the accusation of hypocrisy if we don't? If we say, hey, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and they say, well, if you believe that, then, then, then are you going to eat, uh, why do you eat uh, bacon? Why do you eat pork? Or what about, again, these, these different laws about homes and, and the cloth and things of that nature? Well, turn, if you would, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And this is important for you and I understand. How do we answer these? How do we understand these laws? Again, it's coming to understand what the laws are. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verse 8, in this passage, Paul writes to Timothy to inform them on how to approach the teachings of the law and the ministry. So Timothy, Timothy is writing on a closer day. He's writing to a time in where the law had, had just been fulfilled. And many people are saying, but Timothy, you are, you are a Jew or half Jew. You, you need to follow these laws. And, and so here he is. He's trying to understand them. Should we follow these laws? Should we still do these sacrifices? Should we still do these rituals? And Paul writes them and says, here's how you handle the issue of the law. Look at verse 8. Now that we know, now here, now that we know the law is good. So mark that. The law is good. When we're reading these strange, sometimes difficult, and maybe to our modern sensibilities, uh, harsh, it is still good. If one uses it how? Lawfully. In how it's attended. That's why Jesus continually said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have read that you have heard it said, or you have read, but 
I say to you. He was redirecting it. The law of retaliation become the law of revenge. He says, you're not using it lawfully. Do not muzzle the ox. Don't muzzle the preachers and the pastors and teachers. Again, they had misappropriated. And so it needs to be used lawfully. Look again. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And understanding this, and underline this is this next phrase. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the righteous, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And so who was for the law was? For those who were unjust, for those who were lawless, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Remember the one about two or three witnesses and about a false witness. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what is the law? It is for those who really, let's get it shorthand, reject God. You might want to make a note on the side of your Bible, Romans chapter 1. And then go back to Romans 1 and write down 1 Timothy 1.8. Those are good cross-references for us to understand. And so what is the law for? It's for those that have rebelled and rejected Christ's rule. Look at verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So is the law for you and I today? No and yes. We are not called for its stipulations, but you and I are still under its judgment if we continue to reject God. We've talked about this before. You've heard of the way of the master, many of you. Uh, and... Uh, Ron or Ray? Ray Comfort. There's another evangelist named Ron. I always get them two mixed up. But Ray Comfort, he goes into Huntington Beach typically. One of these days we need to go to Huntington Beach and just try to see and find him. I'd love to do that. I know he was just there not too recently or just recently. And what he does is he'll go to someone and he'll engage them. Whatever the issue is. Abortion, transgenderism, whatever it is. But he eventually he brings them to the law before he speaks about Christ. And that seems strange to you and I. Well, why would he bring in the law? There's no Hebrew children that have just escaped from, from Egypt and are going into the promised land. But he uses the law in a lawful way. He will say to them, do you think that you're good and righteous? And they will say, yeah, I'm, I'm good and righteous. Do you think you're going to heaven? Well, of course I'm going to heaven. I've been a good person. My mom has been good. My, my grandmother is a saint. I've been going to this church. I have this Bible. I, I, I do all these things. But then he would say, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever broken one of God's commandments? Well, maybe a few. Well, do you still call yourself a good person? Well, of course. Well, let me ask you. Have, you. have you ever stole anything? Well, yeah. You guys know where I'm going, right? But what does that make you? A thief. Have you ever looked at a woman or a man with lust? Well, yes. Well, what does that make you? An adulterer. Have you ever lied? Yes, what does that make you? A liar. So by your self-admission, you're an adulterer, lying, stealing man. So are you a good person? No. And you say, but wait a second, I've only done a few of those things. I'm only out of 10, I'm, I'm, I'm 4 for 10. I'm shooting, batting 40%. That'll get me to the Hall of Fame. Well, the wrong Hall of Fame, my friend. 
I'm not that bad. I don't do it too much. Let me just ask you. If you, can you, can you agree that you do three sins a day? At least lie, steal, cheat, think in your head, be angry with someone. If you do that for three times for a year, that's a thousand. Now you do that for seven years, the life of man. Now you have 70,000 times that you've rejected and rebelled against God. Now let me ask you, if you had that many uh, speeding tickets and you went to a court, what do you think the judge would do? Would it be just and fair for him to say, okay, you're free? No! In the same way, how can we stand before a holy God and say, well, I've done it 70,000. You and I know it's much, much more than 70,000. Because the very fact, our nature is falling. And so you and I have to realize that God has given us the gospel. So what he does with the law is the law points out that you and I fail. We have failed to conform to God's law in our actions, in our attitude, the way that we think, and in our nature, our very being. So God is just and fair, he says, for the wages of sin is death. Is appointed unto man once to die, then after this is the judgment. So one day, the Bible says that all of us will stand before God and give account for every word, for every whisper, and for every thought. And let me share with you, the Bible will say that you are guilty for all are guilty and come short of the glory of God. So the law is good in the fact that it shits, it's like a mirror that shows me who I really am. Because I am all of those things in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 10, and much more. Sometimes on my best days. But we stand in the gospel. For if we did not have the law, we wouldn't know what the gospel. When we talk about the good news, it's good news. God created us, loves us. There's bad news. We have all fallen. The law then shows us how we've fallen, how we've failed to conform, where we come short, and then there's the good news of Jesus Christ. For he came and performed all of the requirements of the law perfectly. And by that, he becomes our substitutionary sacrifice. And for the wages of sin is death. He paid that penalty for us. He was judged in my stead for those that accept him. God chooses us and then we choose him. And I pray this morning that you're here, that God has chosen you and it's now your turn to say, I choose you. There is a new covenant. What Paul is teaching is that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. The purpose of the law was not to make one right with God. It could never do that, but to point to our need of a Savior. And I pray today that if you haven't saw it before, that you need a Savior. You don't need a life coach. You don't need a life motivator. You need a Savior. The law is good, thank you, and is beneficial as a guardian, as a picture of the holiness and the character of the Almighty God. But the new covenant of the cross has replaced the old covenant of Mount Sinai. And as Christians, as his chosen people of God, we are his treasured possessions. And we are called also to choose God through the law of Christ. Paul summed up the law of Christ when he writes in Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as we started, I'm sharing with you, is that peace and safety that you and I desire so much for our families, 
for our children, for our spouses, for our communities, our neighbors. It comes through worship of Yahweh. And what does that mean by bearing one another's burdens? It means that peace and safety comes through the worship of God with all of our heart and our soul and our might. We are focused on him. Be thou my vision, O Lord, my God. And when we do that, it motivates us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's been said that fences make good neighbors. But I say today that the only way that you and I can approach any sense of peace and safety in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in our communities, our workplace, and our nation, is when we submit to the will of God and humble ourselves as Christ did. Will that mean that there's peace and safety around us? No, but there's peace and safety in our hearts and our relationships with others, even to those that hate us, malign us, persecute us, as we respond as Christ did. In Colossians chapter 3, you'll see this on the monitor. We read this exhortation, and with this I'll close. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. You know what? I might have not put that on there. Did I not put that on there? Oh, okay. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility and meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, don't cancel them. Don't hate them. Don't give them the cold shoulder. But what? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must also forgive. Verse 14. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, peace, and safety. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Do not fret over November 3rd and what happens after the election. Let the peace of God. It doesn't matter who is king, who is president, who's our senator. And who's on the Supreme Court? For God is sovereign. We're going to talk about that this Sunday, next Sunday, in our ACC class. Be there if you can't, or if you can. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go back. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart in which you have been called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And thank you, Brandon, for bringing that psalm in. We need to sing those. We need to sing the word of God with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In verse 17, let me end with this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Peace and safety only comes through worship of Yahweh, as we focus on him and love our neighbor as ourself. Let this be our commitment as we seek the peace and safety of not only our lives, but the world around us. With every head bowed and every head closed, as worship team comes up, and I'm going to ask Randy if you can come on up all the way as well, so you're ready to go. Is I just want you to take a moment to pause and to consider the words today. I know the law of God, as we read Deuteronomy, they're difficult, they're strange. It, it, it's difficult to work our way through the language and trying to understand what they have for us. And then, and then we want to run away from it because it, 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 there's, there, the, the others use it against us, weaponize it. But let's understand the law is good, is perfect, is pure, and it's to point us to Christ. 
Let us choose him as he's chosen us. And let's live out the requirements that he has called us to live the law, the law of Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.